Good evening and welcome to Temple Beth Tikva. My name is Miriam Van Ralt and I'm the Director of Community Engagement and Communication here. It's my honor to introduce tonight's speaker, although he's really going to introduce himself. Uh, many of you have heard him already. We are celebrating the one month scholar program that is sponsored by the Orange County Community Scholars Program, organized by Ari Katz. And so I'm going to do away with all formalities and introduce Dr. David Ruderman to you. I saw that piano, I was gonna start on the piano, but I, uh, I didn't practice enough, so I, I won't do it here. All right, I wanna just make sure my water sticks here. Uh, and you're going to adjust the mics, right? Because there are three of them, and I feel too loud already, and I haven't even started to talk. You're fine? I'm fine? Uh, okay, let me just pull this out. Um, all right, uh, anyway, I, it's a delight to be here uh, in Fullerton, first time in my life, of course, um, in Beit Tikva. Uh, I am, among other things, a reform rabbi, so uh, uh, I'm sorry I didn't get a chance to meet your rabbi, but apparently he's away. Um, so how many of you are from the congregation and how many of you are uh, from elsewhere? How many from the congregation? I just prefer it, sorry. All right, and, and those, those of you that came from, uh, from there are a bunch of you I, I saw, yeah, great, okay. I've been on this whirlwind lecture tour. I don't think I've ever given so many lectures uh, in the course of a month. Uh, this is number 10 out of 21. Um, and, you know, I could have done it when I was a younger man, but this is, uh, it takes a bit of a stamina. But let me tell you a little bit about myself for those of you that haven't met me before. Um, and then I'm going to tell you how this lecture fits into the 21. Um, I have been teaching for 45 years Jewish studies. Uh, one of the, the grandfathers of the field, when it, be, it, it more or less emerged when I was a graduate student in this country, or let's say exploded, I mean, there were uh, pieces of, of it already, you know, from throughout the 20th century. But clearly the explosion in Jewish studies began in the 1960s and 70s. Uh, and now, of course, most universities uh, around the country uh, teach Jewish studies in one form or another. Uh, I'm an historian, uh, and I have spent my life teaching and researching uh, at the University of Maryland. I began my career. Uh, I did my doctorate at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem uh, and spent a lot of time in Israel. Um, and after Maryland, I spent, I founded the Jewish Studies program at Yale. Uh, and for the last 23 years, uh, I've been a professor at the University of Pennsylvania. So I've had the privilege of teaching uh, some really fine students. Um, in addition to the hundreds of undergraduates or thousands perhaps after all of these years, uh, I've also have 18 doctoral students who are teaching at universities around the country. So you see, I've been at it for a long time um, and uh, it is always a pleasure to teach. Uh, what I'm doing now is what I usually call uh, in the trade a synagogue. You know what a synagogue is? A gig in the synagogue, you know? Um, so I, I've enjoyed that and that's been a part of my life and particularly because I'm not only a reform rabbi but my father was a reform rabbi and my son-in-law is um, uh, a reform rabbi uh, in Chappaqua, you know. Uh, Hillary hasn't joined the congregation yet but uh, <laughs> We're, we're Chappaqua, New York, of course. Um, but um, so that is part of my own tradition. Uh, at this stage, one other aspect of my life, which some of you heard about, those of you who heard my lectures before, um, I love teaching and I love writing books and I've written a bunch. 
uh, a lot, uh, and I continue to write. Um, but what I really love to do is to build institutions. Um, and uh, I've had the privilege at Pennsylvania of creating what is called the Cat Center for Advanced Judaic Studies, which is a kind of um, think tank where scholars come from all over the world uh, around a given subject of Jewish learning, uh, and they produce a book. They listen to each other's lectures, and they talk with each other, and they learn from each other. It's a kind of adult uh, academic social camp, and I'm the camp director. Uh, and it's been absolutely a wonderful experience of building this institution, uh, of raising money. I, I love being a schnorr as well, uh, or I used to. I don't love it anymore. But um, uh, in any case, that is one of uh, the wonderful things that, I, that I've also been able to do in my life. Um, but teaching, of course, and teaching in synagogues is a really wonderful thing. Uh, what I did with, if some of you have seen the brochure of all of the lectures, and they're all over Orange County, and I'm really getting to see every uh, synagogue and Jewish community center. Why don't I step on here? Um, um, they are arranged in clusters. And um, uh, so for this morning, for example, uh, I was teaching uh, a course on God and, God and nature about uh, one of my uh, uh, research areas, which is uh, the subject of uh, how Judaism uh, relates to the natural world, to science, uh, and to medicine. Why am I doing, am I doing that? Or this goes off and on. Um, okay. Um, um, but this part is really, was supposed to come at the end, but they, you know, uh, they obviously had to fit it to the synagogues that made requests. So what this is, is a five-part series, three parts that are given as a, a, a small course at the JCC in Irvine, and then um, these two lectures that stand aside. One is on three Zionist thinkers, and this one uh, is on Heschel and uh, Mordechai Kaplan. Uh, I, I don't know how many of you have, I, I assume you came here because you've heard about each thinker, and perhaps you've studied each before, but I'm gonna sort of offer you my own take. Um, th this comes out of a course which I not only give regularly at Penn, uh, but has also been part of the Great Teacher Series, the Great, uh, it's called the Great Courses, or, or uh, uh, you know, you know the Great, t t the, the series, so there are two of my courses. You can get 48 hours of Rudiman if you think it's worthwhile. I don't know if it is. Um, but uh, that this uh, you will find there as well, at least in a different form. Um, most, almost all of the 20 lectures come from my own research. This one I've been teaching for an awful long time. I began learning this material in rabbinical school. Um, but I have uh, pursued it and taught it for many years. It's actually a course uh, called Modern Jewish Thought where I engage my students in thinking about their own Jewish identity by studying a whole group of Jewish thinkers and thinking about the subject of God, Torah, and Israel. Um, and what they come out with is, is, is a real sense of the panorama of Jewish thinking and how Jewish thought uh, might help them in thinking about their own condition. Uh, there are a lot of non-Jews, of course, in the course, um, but it is a course that, although it doesn't really cover my own research areas, it's, it's so stimulating to see how they respond and how they react. Uh, so it's become my favorite course, uh, and hopefully you will appreciate uh, a little bit of it uh, this evening. So I want to introduce you to two thinkers. Uh, how many of you, I just want to see where, where we are in terms of, how many of you have studied either thinker, Heschel or Kaplan? All right, there are a few. Okay, good. Um, so then you can correct me if I make a mistake. I think that would be uh, 
uh, advisable. Um, I'm going to present them side by side, and it's uh, and so so this five-part series was to be about disputations or great debates in Jewish history. I began it last week by speaking about Maimonides and Yehuda Levi, the medieval thinkers. Uh, next week, I'm giving uh, another lecture on the Baal Shem Tov, the founder of Hasidism, and the Gaon Elijah Vilna, his, his uh, major arch rival. Um, but now we are in the 20th century, so I have to kind of move myself. I've been you know, teaching medieval and early modern history. Now we are in the 20th century. Um, it is the, the reason I pair these two thinkers together um, is obvious to anyone that has studied them. And that is uh, that they taught together for a number of years at the Jewish Logical Seminary of America, the conservative seminary uh, in New York. Um, and what is obvious is that their philosophies of Judaism are diametrically opposed. Maybe that's pushing it too hard. They are certainly very, very different. And uh, I wasn't there, of course, but I suspect they didn't like each other or they, th they could not understand each other uh, at all. And in many respects, uh, Mordechai Kaplan and Abraham Joshua Heschel had their greatest impact upon their seminary students. Uh, in other words, on, on the shaping of conservative Judaism. To the point where Mordechai Kaplan, of course, and his disciples eventually left the conservative movement to create Reconstructionist Judaism. Uh, are there Reconstructionist synagogues? And I think I'm speaking at one. Uh, university, is it? Yeah. Yeah, that's coming up next week. Um, so, but that's the only one in Orange County, as far as you know? Okay. Uh, oh, you belong. That's, that's why you put your hand. Yeah, that's right. You told me that. Okay. Um, so, um, uh, Reconstructionist Judaism has emerged, and we'll talk about Reconstructionist Judaism a little later on, but I'm going to talk mostly about uh, Kaplan's thinking. Uh, Heschel, on the other hand, uh, is also a kind of uh, bird out of, uh, uh, what's the word, uh, duck out of the water. Um, he was a neo-Hasidic, coming from, coming from a Hasidic background, very traditional, uh, although he held a PhD and was very academic, uh, and also uh, came from Eastern Europe uh, and was a traditional Orthodox Jew, but nevertheless, he taught at JTS. Uh, so um, uh, it's very interesting. I mean, he, I, when I teach him, I consider him an Orthodox Jewish thinker. But indeed, his, his uh, affiliation uh, at JTS uh, was uh, conservative. But at the time that he taught there, uh, there were a whole series of professors, uh, including the great uh, Professor Lieberman, who were Orthodox Jews who had just found employment in the seminary, and uh, they would daven as Orthodox Jews. I mean, they, uh, they were there, they was, they were, but they weren't really shaping conservative ideology. Nevertheless, Heschel had enormous influence on conservative Judaism uh, and on various currents today. Uh, it's very interesting that, uh, you know, it's almost Hegelian in the way I'm describing this. What I mean by that is, you know, there's, there's Kaplan over here, then there's Heschel, but ultimately, um, the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College, which is in Philadelphia, uh, not far away from where I live, um, had a, uh, a provost for many years, a, 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 a Rosh Yeshiva for many years, uh, called Arthur Green who was himself a student of Hasidism and mysticism and uh, had a great impact upon the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College so that, uh, among other things, and we'll talk about this maybe at the end, uh, their focus became more Hasidic or neo-Hasidic. 
So maybe everything has sort of come around here, and maybe we have a synthesis here at the end, you know, thesis, antithesis, I was referring to Hegel. But let me, first of all, present the thinkers one by one uh, and try to enter into their thinking about Judaism, and then let me bring them together, and we can also talk about the sociology of how these Jewish movements have developed within American Jewish culture. I think the other thing to say about them is that they, uh, although Heschel, you could argue, uh, both of them were, were born in Eastern Europe, and both of them, to some extent, were shaped <clears throat> within an Eastern European Jewish context, they are our most original American Jewish thinkers. Uh, and in every respect, they are indeed American, as you will see, uh, and uh, certainly uh, related their Jewish understanding to the American context in which they, uh, they live. So uh, let me take another... So I'm gonna need a little help tonight because my voice is already shot from this morning, but I'm gonna keep going and I'll be fine. Uh, okay, Mordechai Kaplan. So Kaplan lived from 1881 to 1983. That's not a, uh, a mistake, that's true. Uh, 102. Um, I remember uh, when I was a student in New York, uh, I often attended on Shabbat, the Society for the Advancement of Judaism, and I saw Mordechai Kaplan sitting in his famous seat. He was already um, a rabbi emeritus, but he would daven there, and I would see him with his very finely trimmed beard uh, and very uh, distinguished. Uh, and therefore, yeah, that's about the closest. I mean, I said hello to him, but I really didn't know him very well. But clearly, I do remember him from the Society for Advancement of Judaism, which was the major uh, shul uh, or synagogue of the Reconstructionist movement. Kaplan... Uh, emerged, or his philosophy of Judaism, emerged in a book called uh, Judaism as a Civilization. It was written in the 1930s. And it clearly it was a response to the second generation Jew off of the boat. In other words, during the period of 1880 to 1920, several million Jews came here from Eastern Europe. Uh, many of them are probably your own ancestors or uh, parents or grandparents or whatever. Uh, and <clears throat> clearly, <clears throat> American Jewry was transformed by the immigrant experience, particularly in the East Coast, in New York, uh, in the Lower East Side, etc. Kaplan emerged as a thinker in the generation following that immigrant community. So in other words, these were second generation American Jews. They lived in a world where their parents spoke with heavy Yiddish accents, uh, and they were entering through the public school system. These were the Jews that went to City College of New York uh, when City College was almost 95% uh, Jewish. I must say, I'm also a graduate of City College. Uh, my undergraduate years were spent before free tuition when there were also, uh, I mean, it was still very cheap, 95% uh, Jews uh, in, in the college. So these were kids who were emerging out of their Eastern European Jewish experience entering the larger world and essentially we're, uh, we're, we're experiencing the cultural shock of learning to speak good English, of learning to participate in the economic dream of America, of learning how to be part of a cultural world, uh, a melting pot of cultures and so on. But looking at their own parents, obviously with love, but also um, with a sense that these were old fashioned and out of date 
uh, and we're not part of the new world. In other words, that dichotomy between the old and the new was very, very uh, a strong feeling. Uh, there was a strong feeling among this community. And, and thus, I want, to, I want to begin by talking about Kaplan from a sociological perspective. Those, that's the, the issue he's addressing here. How do we take a American culture, which is rational, which is scientific, which is empiricist, which is moving to create new technology and so on. And how do we relate this to the old religion? That's the question. Or how does the old religion fit into the new world of culture? And how can we be Jewish at the same time to be fully American? And how can we speak about supernaturalism, which is a word that Kaplan often uses when he talks about, uh, about Judaism. The supernatural is something that is beyond reason. How can we read the biblical miracles in the Bible and take them seriously? We live in an, in a rational world, and we think scientifically. Notice the word science appears and reappears all of the time. And therefore, we need a Judaism based on naturalism. In other words, a Judaism or a faith which does not offend our own scientific sensibilities. And thus again, you see the, the, the picture. In other words, the question I might ask you, even to start by starting now, is this mindset of the 30s and the 40s in America still relevant for us today? I mean, that's the question about, uh, to ask about Mordechai Kaplan. But clearly, he was addressing the need of his generation. And indeed, his philosophy was original because it reflected the American cultural scene at this moment in time and the need for Jews somehow to adjust to this cultural world, to fit in, to make it, but to preserve Judaism. In other words, simply by leaving, assimilating, acculturating uh, was something that was uh, unfathomable, to, unfathomable to, to a Kaplan. There was a need somehow to construct a new understanding of Judaism that somehow reflected the time in which we lived. What I want to do is to talk about Kaplan and also uh, Heschel from the perspective of what I consider to be the three prongs of Jewish thought. The question of God, or in this time I'm going to actually start with the second question, the question of, or that's actually the third, God, Torah, Israel. Israel, I'm going to start with, and you see why, because that's where Kaplan starts. I want to start where he begins. But these three issues are the issues I want to talk about. What is his notion of God, which is not an easy notion? What is his notion of the Jewish people? That's what I mean by Israel. And what is his notion of Torah? In other words, what do we do to be Jewish? Do we observe mitzvot? Do we observe commandments? Do we observe tikkun olam, moral action? Uh, are we gastronomic Jews? Do we eat bagels on Sunday, which makes us Jews? I, I heard the bagels aren't very good out here. Is that true? Um, in any case, uh, Th those are the three questions, and that's how I want to frame them. But I need to start with a question that Kaplan started with, and that is the question of Jewish particularity. How is it possible to justify the Jewish people? Uh, uh, traditionally, of course, the answer is very simple. We are the chosen people. We were chosen by God. We entered into a covenant with God, beginning with the biblical theology. And therefore, God gave us anointed us with the commandments on Sinai, and he gave us this special role among the communities. We are a chosen people, and therefore we are given commandments to follow through, and we accept the law. This is the traditional understanding of Judaism. It is a supernatural understanding of Judaism for Kaplan. But we live in a world where that understanding is no longer possible, says Mordechai Kaplan. 
We live in a world with the rise of fascism and the, wor and the, wor and the rise of Nazism in the 30s, where speaking about anyone to be calling them chosen is offensive. How can we be chosen? How can we be distinguished from other people because God anointed us? That makes no sense. It is insulting. It is simply immoral in the context that we are living today. And here I'm speaking in Kaplan's name. I'm not, this is not Ruderman's theology. This is Kaplan. I'm trying to, I'm trying to become Kaplan for the next uh, 10 minutes or so. In any case, so he has to find another answer. So how do you justify then Jewish particularity? Why be Jewish? If indeed we were not chosen and we cannot use the language of chosenness to describe the Jewish, uh, Jewish peoplehood. Kaplan studied at Columbia University. And one of the important departments at Columbia University in New York was its anthropology and sociology departments. And he learned this, the theories of Lucien Levy Brule and particularly of Emile Durkheim, uh, the great uh, French sociologist, Jewish. Uh, and he found on the basis of their theories a kind of scientific basis for understanding the purpose of the Jewish people. One learns from anthropology, Kaplan contends, that the religion of the savage, that is the primitive man, is nothing more than the sublimation or projection of the wants of his tribe. The essence of religion in ancient, ancient times is group emotion. In other words, he studies in anthropology, and he comes up with a particular theory of anthropology which suggests that religious or religious feelings emerge within the context of groups. Kaplan therefore concludes that it is only as a member of society that one comes to know God. The function of God is to hallow the communal will. In other words, through this particular school of anthropology, rather than chosenness, rather than supernaturalism, we can look to understand that it is natural and therefore preferable that we understand God and relate to our religious experience through a group, not as an individual, but through a group. Now to reach this conclusion, of course, Kaplan assumed that primitive religion was typical religion and it can serve to measure our own societies. He assumed, or to put it another way, that descriptive anthropology can be used to construct the science of human behavior. Based on this assumption, it was natural and thus desirable for religions to constitute themselves as folk religions. Each nation in the present should develop its religion as each tribe did in ancient times. I'm looking at this, at, at some of my words here, because I'm, I'm giving you Kaplan's words, and that's why I want to be very precise. What easily follows was a justification for Judaism, not as a religion, and here are the key words for Kaplan, but as a civilization. That is, the fusion of nation and religion, which science has proclaimed as being both natural and thus normal and even normative. In other words, we Jews should be part of a community where we hallow our religious ideology because anthropology teaches us this was the natural state of affairs when human beings lived in primitive societies. Since Kaplan was a naturalist, he rejected, as we have said, the supernatural election of the Jewish people, arguing it was outdated and morally obnoxious, 
He required a natural justification of the Jewish religious peoplehood, and thus he found in the anthropological theories he propounded. There was one other influence on this idea, and I should mention it here. Uh, I am not, am I speaking about him? Uh, I'm speaking about three Zionist thinkers, and I can't remember which ones. Uh, but in any case, perhaps some of you have heard of the great Zionist thinker Achad Ha'am, uh, Asher Ginsberg. Achad Ha'am wrote in the 19th century. He was a cultural Zionist, and clearly Kaplan read him and commented upon him. So the other influence upon Kaplan was cultural Zionism. Uh, Achad Ha'am challenged uh, Theodor Herzl and argued that ultimately when the Jewish people go back to the land of Israel, they need more than a political state. They need a revival and resuscitation of their culture. Uh, so the cultural aspect that became important. For Achad uh, Am, not every Jew would go and make Aliyah. Only a small group would live in Israel. Uh, but they would radiate their cultural efflorescence out into the larger diaspora a kind of wheel, you know, the center of the wheel and spokes that go out to the diaspora, radiating their presence and so on. Clearly, uh, Kaplan liked this idea very much, and he was indeed a cultural Zionist. At the end of his life, at the age of 90-something, he made Aliyah. Uh, and there is, of course, a, a large and very active Reconstructionist synagogue called a Kilat in, in Jerusalem called Kilat Mivakshei Derech. It's a very nice title. Anybody know Hebrew here? Can translate that for me? Seeking the path. The, yeah, the, the, the path seekers, okay? The seekers of the path. That's the name. And uh, the great disciple of, of Mordechai Kaplan was a guy named Jack Cohn, who was also the Hillel rabbi at the Hebrew University. And he was the rabbi of that congregation for many years. I don't think he's still alive, but uh, he clearly was also a very important thinker of Reconstructionist Judaism. One other aspect of this national idea, before I move on to the idea of God in Kaplan, um, is the fact that Kaplan was responsible for this wonderful, uh, some say wonderful, others would say uh, uh, um, problematic institution of Jewish life. No, I won't say problematic, I'll say wonderful, um, called the JCC. Um, or as one historian has called it, the shul with a pool, uh, the idea <laughs> Uh, that essentially, you know, you come uh, to, uh, to an all-purpose place where Jews can daven and they can also sit in a Schwitz room and, you know, and play basketball. Uh, in, in fact, the Jewish Community Center on 86th Street in New York was the original institution of Reconstructionist Judaism that Kaplan founded. Uh, eventually, they moved across the street, as I said, to the Society for the Advancement of Judaism. They're still on 86th Street. Uh, and that, J and that uh, the Jewish Community Center is now an Orthodox shul, very active Orthodox shul. But nevertheless, that was Ka Kaplan's notion that Judaism was, you know, Israeli dancing. It was uh, folk culture. It was all these things. It wasn't just davening. Uh, and therefore, the idea of Jews playing basketball and then, you know, learning Torah was something that made total sense. So this was, of course, uh, one of Kaplan's innovations as well. Kaplan's idea of God, and I have to watch my time. I started about, uh, what time did I start? Seven-ish. Seven so I've already been going a half an hour. Boy, I wasted too much time introducing myself. Okay, all right. So I'm, I'm going to go about 20 minutes and no more. I'm going to watch the time now more carefully. But I've I got to then go through Kaplan so I can get to Heschel. All right, so Kaplan's idea of God. Kaplan also sought a scientific basis for God which would not offend modern sensibilities. 
Here is Kaplan's definition. You tell me what it means. I'm not sure I understand. God is the sum of all those factors and relationships in the universe that make for unity, creativity, and worthwhileness in human life. Kaplan's God is neither a supernatural God, outside nature, nor simply identifiable with the mere strivings of human beings. His notion of God is clearly ambiguous, writing both as a, we would call a theist or a humanist. The living God of Israel is now reduced to a name, to a set of processes which make for human welfare. So how, what do people pray to when they walk into a Reconstructionist synagogue? If God is no longer personal, if you're not speaking to the thou, uh, I'm giving another lecture in the course of these uh, last 11 on Martin Buber, who uh, is another uh, contemporary of this period. I invite you to come to that one as well. Uh, and he dearly has a calls God the eternal thou when we speak to God as a person. But for Kaplan, that is, not, that is not possible. God is no longer personal, so why are prayers necessary? And Kaplan's answer is quite clear. We need prayer uh, to ascribe personality to what is really, in fact, abstract and impersonal. Prayer is not objectively efficacious, but it is subjectively meaningful. And in prayer, the group enhances its collective consciousness. So even though our prayers aren't going to reach God, forget it, it's not going to happen. Nevertheless, we pray together because individually, it, it psychologically is meaningful to reflect a kind of, 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 of creative alienation, so to speak, from the world and a reflection on, on the meaning of our life. And we do it in a group so that we, we share that sense of group bonding which makes it meaningful and we are part of a civilization. So uh, nevertheless, so we daven the prayers, but we know that it doesn't necessarily work, but nevertheless it works in a different way, in a way which does not offend our naturalistic sensitivities. Again, notice the consistency here of a natural Judaism, naturalistic Judaism. Finally, Kaplan's reconstruction of tradition. In rejecting a supernatural Judaism, Kaplan rejected the legally binding basis of Jewish practice. Jewish law can no longer function, says Kaplan, as a legal system with rewards and punishments for the believer. Jewish rituals and practices were never commanded by some god sitting up there uh, in his throne on the universe. That, again, is a supernatural idea which had meaning for our ancestors but not for us. And therefore, what are Jewish rituals? They are folk ways, which are constantly reinterpreted. Kaplan argued for their functional value. When we speak about salvation, we don't mean it in a supernatural way. We mean it in terms of bettering our own meaning and happiness within this world. And therefore, Shabbat is very meaningful, not as in its supernatural understanding, but in a natural way of making our life more meaningful in terms that we can relate to and understand. Uh, clearly then, uh, the practices of Judaism are not minimized by Reconstructionist Judaism, they are enhanced. But they are seen not as binding laws, but rather as things we do to enhance the group and our own feeling of connection with Judaism, both past and present, through ritual practice. In other words, again, this is the anthropologist speaking here and so on. So Mordechai Kaplan's legacy is really quite interesting. Uh, ultimately, he 
was part uh, of conservative Judaism, and only his disciples after him created a fourth branch of Judaism, so to speak, in America. It never took fire as the other three movements and has always been much smaller, with a seminary created in Philadelphia. Uh, clearly, there are very uh, few, relatively speaking, Reconstructionist synagogues compared to the larger movements of conservative reform and, of course, orthodoxy. Um, in subsequent years, of course, one could ask the question, does this ideology of a kind of rational, American rational Judaism work within a, uh, a context of maybe we would call our world the post-modern world or a world that is seeking more spirituality? Does it really satisfy our needs in praying to God or in the kind of spirituality that some Jews uh, seek, especially, you know, uh, in, uh, as a, my stereotype of California Jews, you know, Madonna and uh, New Age and all of that stuff and so on. Will, that, will Kaplan's theories ultimately be meaningful either to the scientist or to the religionist? Is Kaplan's God, for example, a scientific idea of some kind of force within the universe that works for goodness, which is neither a supernatural God nor simply our own desires to make ourselves better? What exactly is that God? And does that fulfill our needs uh, in terms of our own personal religion? I don't know, but one thing I can say is that Reconstructionist Judaism has evolved over time. And as I suggested already, the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College is a college which teaches Kabbalah, mysticism, and does all kinds of things. In other words, has creatively worked on worship and uh, it, its prayer books are really quite amazing. Um, and it has been clearly very creative uh, in, uh, in, in, in developing Judaism in its own particular way. The other aspect of, uh, of Reconstructionist Judaism that is worth mentioning in terms of a legacy uh, and the final thing I want to say before turning to Heschel is that um, uh, uh, Reconstructionists were the first to be totally open towards uh, gay and transgendered uh, Jews. Uh, and uh, I would say that uh, uh, the majority of students now are, are gay, uh, are gay or lesbian. Uh, and uh, clearly, uh, Reconstructionist Judaism put itself on the front line in terms of its support uh, of, 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 uh, uh, of, of Jews uh, who, who, uh, who chose to be, uh, to be gay. Uh, only recently have Reformed Judaism accepted. Uh, when, I was, uh, when I graduated the Reformed Rabbinical Seminary, uh, there were several professors that would not sign a uh, smicha if, if a student uh, was gay and so on. But that, of course, has changed. And uh, uh, you know, we have moved in the direction of, but Reconstructions were really the first. Uh, but clearly, uh, in this area of gender and sexuality, uh, Reconstructionist Judaism was a leader. Uh, so that's Mordechai Kaplan. Now, I want to introduce Heschel, and I see my time is running out, so I, I don't want to shortchange him, but I'm going I'm to cut a little bit of this. Uh, Abraham Joshua Heschel was a product of Eastern Europe and German Jewish culture. He grew up in a Hasidic family, and he wrote a great deal about Hasidism. He was trained in the writings of the Kabbalists, and the Hasidic masters, and he came to uh, the Jewish Logical Seminary uh, uh, in the 30s, uh, or actually in the 40s, right before, and he was here during the Holocaust uh, years, uh, but he escaped the Holocaust, and he became a kind of uh, a paradigm of Eastern European spirituality. Um, one of his most interesting books is The Earth in the, uh, uh, is the Lord's, 
which originally was written in Yiddish in 1940 as a book that was written for YIVO, for the secular Yiddishists. Uh, in its first Yiddish version, it's a very interesting story, uh, it talked about, it was, it was written in, uh, excuse me, in 1945, right after the Holocaust, and it lamented, of course, the loss of this remarkable Jewish community because of the Holocaust. It came out in a second edition in English in 1950, and in this version, the language had been changed. It was no longer a secular dirge. It was, in fact, an emotional, uh, pietistic, uh, uh, mystical evocation of the Jewish world that had been lost. In other words, it's a remarkable transformation in which uh, uh, Heschel was moving in a direction very, very different from Kaplan. So if Kaplan is the quintessential uh, empiricist rationalist, uh, uh, Heschel is, the, is a person, is the Jew, who speaks to our generation in the language of the Kabbalah, in the language of Jewish mysticism and Hasidism. Uh, clearly, he was educated in the world of Buber and Rosenzweig, of religious existentialism, and therefore uh, he clearly uh, adopted many of these positions in his own writing. Um, I have here, and I think I'm going to skip it, uh, a poem which was written in Yiddish uh, as a youth in the 1930s, where he evokes the Holocaust. In other words, I want you to recall that particular background that he came from. In other words, it is quite clear that for him, he stood for that memory of Eastern European Jewry when he came here. And if you ever saw them, both of them, both thinkers had beards and so on. Kaplan's beard was more nicely trimmed. Heschel looked more like a Hasidic Rebbe. Um, but both of them, of course, uh, look very much the parts of these, these theologians. When he came to America and eventually assumed the professorship, he actually, for a period of time, was in Hebrew Union College in Cincinnati. Um, HUC had been really in the forefront of saving uh, these scholars from the Shoah and were offering them positions, but HUC was, and Cincinnati was not a place that Heschel wanted to hang out with uh, too very long, and he left and he returned to the Jewish Logical Seminary of America, uh, where he left a, a, a major impression uh, on uh, his students. He was not a great teacher, uh, but clearly by the image of who he was, he evoked a certain spirituality, uh, a certain charisma, which was indeed contagious. His traditionalist position, of course, was that Jews need to observe the halakha. There is no question about it. Although the language of his books is very open and is indeed suggests the possibility that he is not simply orthodox, Indeed, when you reduce it to everything, you are still speaking about the 613 commandments which every traditional Jew must observe. In that sense, he was firmly uh, committed to that notion of the halakha, of Jewish law. But what was attractive about him was his mystical rhetoric, which gained even more acceptance with the waning of rationalism upon which Kaplan, of course, had built his theories. The other aspect of Heschel which needs to be emphasized right from the start and really suggests the complexity of this beautiful soul, both of them, of course, beautiful souls. I'm not suggesting one is better than the other here. I'm simply interpreting both. But Heschel was deeply committed to social activism. He was one of the major leaders of, uh, of the movement for Russian Jewry. But he also marched with Martin Luther King hand in hand. And we have that very famous picture of Heschel and Martin Luther King together. He was deeply involved with civil rights. So here you have this kind of mystic Hasidic teacher with his beard, his white beard, marching with Martin Luther King. 
and fighting for what he considered to be America. And for him, this came out of his deep mystical soul. So what we have here is a rather complex figure. He is not simply a mystic that turns within, but a person that his mysticism drives him to transform the world. In other words, uh, for uh, many of us Reformed Jews, we have lost that, that mystical part, that spiritual part, or we separate spirituality from social activism. For Heschel, it was a very, very uh, natural kind of experience. Heschel's theology is based on the notion of God as ineffable. I love that word. Do you know what the word means? What does it mean? Undescribable, yeah. The, it can't be reduced to words. In other words, uh, it is an experience that one encounters, but something that we cannot reduce to a kind of uh, formulation in language. It is not an idea of God that we seek, but a presence. Uh, and that is very different from the sum total of the processes that we described with, with Kaplan, who was trying to reduce the notion of God to an idea that would somehow fit scientifically into our world. For Heschel, it is the exact opposite. We approach God by approaching God, by approaching the world, and not reducing him conceptually to an idea, to a formulation of words. God is ineffable. God, uh, Heschel first read, wrote a book called The Prophets in the 1930s, uh, tr and he tried to describe what happens when the prophets are addressed by God and how they respond to him. From this idea, he discovered that the essential notion of the divine relating to human beings is the notion of divine pathos. That is, God is intimately affected, involved, and stirred by the conduct and fate of human beings. The divine pathos plays, uh, gives God a crucial stake in the human situation, since whatever human beings do they not only affect their own lives, but also directly the life of God. Heschel's most famous book is called God in Search of Man. And that is the idea that I've been trying to describe and I want to describe again. An idea that was inspired by the biblical narrative on the one hand and by Hasidic sources on the other, and particularly the notion of the Kabbalah. In the Sefer Hazor, the classic work of Jewish Kabbalah, the notion of doing mitzvot, of doing commandments, is not simply to fulfill our own needs, but God is in need of our mitzvot. We al allow the divine process to emerge, or we encourage divinity or support and help God by doing the commandments. That is the ultimate meaning of a dialogical relationship between God and man, or a covenantial relationship between God and man. God does his part because we do our part. We help God and God helps us. Now, it is a kind of chutzpahdik idea, isn't it? The notion that God needs our help. I mean, what, if he's God, what does he need our help for? But for Heschel, clearly that is a Kabbalistic idea which comes right out of medieval Kabbalah. And he sees it as the acting notion by which to enliven the process by which we are engaged in the world and the word of God. We do commandments because we improve the world and God through our commandments. It's not simply doing commandments for our own sake. It's not simply going through ritual for its own purpose. But we stimulate the world and we stimulate God's activity who then reveals his own presence upon us, who bestows on us his beneficence. So therefore, uh, it is a two-way street. 
That is uh, Heschel's impressive evocation of this prophetic experience uh, is an attempt on the part of, with his rhetoric, to address the non-religious Jews, the secular Jews, the Jews who have lost their way, and to convey a certain feeling and spirit through his rhetorical writings that will bring, him back, bring them back to Judaism. The book of, a book of Heschel is a kind of ongoing homiletic expression of Judaism. It is not a rational exposition. Read uh, uh, the idea of God in, in Jewish religion by Kaplan or Judaism and civilization. You'll be reading a dry academic text. Read Heschel and you'll be reading uh, a homiletical work of beauty, of grandeur, of poetry, and so on. Some people uh, love it. Uh, I must confess that I'm more of a, uh, less of a Hasid, more of a misnugget. Uh, so I, I, I'm not sure I, I get all of Heschel's prose. But Heschel is really writing to convey a certain spirit about Judaism, uh, and he does so in a remarkable way. Uh, and these books, therefore, are very contagious. I must tell you quickly, I, I, I know I have to finish, and I'm, I'm almost there, um, but let me just tell you a very important story that happened to me a number of years ago. As I mentioned, I, or maybe I didn't mention, um, I am now teaching at Penn only in the fall, and I spend my uh, springs in Europe uh, teaching in various European universities. Um, I was teaching, and I'm actually going back in the middle of February to Antwerp in Belgium, uh, which is a very beautiful city and has a wonderful Jewish studies program, and I have a regular uh, gig there, as we would say. Um, and I actually, believe it or not, I, it's just a coincidence, I gave a lecture like this on Heschel and Kaplan in a series that I was giving there a number of years ago as it, it, it's, a, it's a remarkable position. It's a visiting professorship shared by Jewish studies and by the Jesuits. I mean, I love it. On Jewish Christian relations, which is one of my fields. Uh, so uh, I love Jesuits. I mean, I think they're really cool. And, uh, and you know, particularly when they're supporting Jewish studies. Uh, so um, in any case, um, we get an announcement uh, beforehand that the Bishop of Antwerp is coming to my lecture. Bishop of Antwerp, wow, that's a big deal. Uh, this big, so this big Catholic work walks in, six foot five, uh, and enormous guy, and I never saw such a big cross he was wearing around him. <laughs> and he sits down in the front seat right in front of the lectern where I'm lecturing. I said, he must have made a mistake. He's coming to the wrong lecture. What does he care about Heschel and Kaplan? Uh, anyway, I gave my lecture, and he's sitting there smiling and shaking his head, and I, some, something's resonating. So I go up to him afterwards and I said, you know, I don't know what you call uh, the bishop or the monk, you know, I, 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 your holiness or whatever. Um, and uh, I said to me, you know, you must have made a mistake. What are you doing here is basically what I said. I said it more politely than that. Uh, and he said, are you kidding? Have you heard of a book called The Sabbath? The Sabbath, of course, is written by Heschel. And of course, I heard of the book. I can lecture on the book. Um, well, I have insisted that all the members of my parish read this book because I have a real problem. They don't want to come on Sunday morning. And if they understand what the Sabbath is, in this remarkable book, Heschel evokes the beauty, the excitement, the inspiration of what it means to observe Shabbat. And what this, what this bishop did was to take that same book and use it for his own Catholic parishioners. That's real ecumenicism, I would argue, right? I mean, that really works. So I walked away, you know, really feeling good about myself and feeling that I had really spoken to a Christian. 
So the question is, as I tried to sum up, I'm going to leave the rest out. I could talk about Heschel's writing on Israel and so on. But Heschel's primary concern was revelation. And therefore, while he did write a book after the Six-Day War called Israel Echo of an Eternity, clearly his notion of, in terms of his theology is to speak about how God reveals himself to uh, the Jewish people and the purpose of the mitzvot, the purpose of the commandments, and to evoke a certain sense of energy and excitement that the commandments will turn you on, and to speak here both as a mystic and as a social activist. In other words, I think Heschel is most important as a living embodiment of what Judaism meant in, uh, in his time. Um, of course, both Heschel and Kaplan are gone, uh, but both of them, as you see, have provided us with remarkable uh, original and thoughtful understandings of our Jewish identity. The question, I guess, and maybe I've sort of tipped the balance by being a little unfair to Kaplan. I don't mean to uh, uh, suggest that Heschel is cooler than Kaplan. I'm not a Heschelian either. Um, but I do think that both of these strands exist within our own American Jewish experience. I guess the world that we live in now is maybe a little bit postmodernist or post-rational. And, and it seems to me that it, from just the sociology of American religion, uh, Heschel has uh, evoked more emotion and more feeling among certain Jews, particularly within the conservative movement and the reform movement as well. Um, on the other hand, uh, um, Kaplan's honesty, his attempt to understand Judaism within an American context, uh, uh, and his deep appreciation for Judaism in a new paradigm, in a new language of American culture is something that we can learn a great deal from. But I must tell you honestly, looking, I'm not a theologian, I'm only an historian, but looking at the world that we live in today, uh, perhaps we need more Kaplans and more Heschels. In other words, that we need others to interpret Judaism in our own day, in our own world, which is neither that of Heschel nor of Kaplan. On the other hand, each of them contributed in their own way to our own understanding of ourselves. Uh, they adjusted Judaism and they argued for its relevance and its meaning in our own time. Uh, and I guess uh, by being students of both Heschel and Kaplan uh, and by taking seriously the mission they both set out for themselves, both in terms of how they lived the Jewish life uh, and how they understood Judaism, uh, we can learn a great deal from their examples. So, thank you. So, I spoke longer than I was going to, but I did the best. There were two thinkers, not one. Uh, and I hopefully, I, I, I didn't really want to make a debate. I wanted to make them, you know, two differing postures to compare and contrast. So uh, I am open, uh, since uh, there's uh, no moderator around here, I can moderate myself. Um, I'm open for a while for questions. I don't want to keep you too long. And I know there is a reception to follow, correct? Uh, yeah, so let's take a, a couple of questions. Uh, OK, right here, yes. Why did Heschel choose to teach his career within the conservative system? I'm glad he did. But from his background and from his philosophy, and from his adherence uh, to halacha, seems as if he would have been better fitted within the orthodox system. Yeah, yeah, no, you're right. Um, I don't know, uh, I mean, I think that's a good question. I think part of the problem was, you know, being a refugee scholar in the 40s uh, to have a job. I mean, he went to HUC first. That really wasn't a place you couldn't get a kosher, uh, you know, uh, a sandwich there. 
uh, and he didn't fit in there, but he's actually began his career in American HUC. Uh, so I guess, I, I think the other thing to say is that as, as I, um, if you look at the sociology, uh, so Cincinnati was very classical reform, you know, a kind of tradition of anti-tradition. The New York School of HUC, uh, I'm talking about the Reform Seminary, was a more traditional place because it originally had been the Jewish Institute of Religion founded by Stephen Wise. They joined together in the 1950s. My father, for example, was a graduate of the Jewish Institute of Religion before it was called Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion. And it was a much more Jewish place. And it was also ordaining uh, rabbis uh, who, were, um, who, were, who were many denominational, including Orthodox. Uh, in the Jewish Institute of Religion in New York, for example, uh, Salo Baron, the historian, was there, and there were other uh, traditional Jews who were teaching. Similarly, at the seminary, the seminary was the school for teaching conservative Judaism, but almost all of its faculty were Orthodox. It wasn't just him. And Saul Lieberman was the commanding presence of the place. He was the great Talmudist, which all Orthodox Jews would acknowledge as the great Talmudist of his time. Uh, and also David Weiss Halivni, who published uh, his own commentaries on the Palestinian Talmud. These were the great Talmudists of their time. Um, and therefore, there was a kind of dichotomy between the seminary as a place where Jews davened and lived an Orthodox Jewish life, at least their professors, uh, and the community, in other words, out there, you know, the, the rabbinical assembly where they were doing conservative Judaism. Uh, so there was a clear dichotomy. I, uh, I don't know why he wasn't offered a job at Yeshiva University or why he stayed there all of those years. Uh, I'm glad he did because I think he had a great impact. Um, I think as time went on, however, given the odd way in which he formulated Judaism or the unique way, let's not call it odd, uh, his social activism, his engagement with the outside world, perhaps certain Orthodox Jews felt uncomfortable with him and therefore JTS was indeed the right place for him to be. Um, but as I said, when Kaplan and Heschel were there together, um, it was combustible. I mean, it wasn't, uh, they, they were very different, and I gather they didn't hang out, you know, having a beer with each other. Um, yes? Can you talk about why Kaplan moved to Israel later? I think um, it was a kind of, why Kaplan moved to Israel? I think it was probably a fulfillment of his life. He was always a cultural Zionist. Uh, as I said, the Chada'am played a very important role in his life. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I actually met him in Israel also because I would also attend Jack Cohn's uh, synagogue when Jack probably obviously extended his hand to invite Mordechai Kaplan. Um, I guess he was living beyond his years and maybe he wanted to start a new career, you know, at the age of 93 or 4. Uh, and he lived, as, as you saw, to the age of 102. Um, I've been told, I mean... He came back here to die. To die. He, he, he died. That's possible. Where did he die? In New York? In New York, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's, okay, that's possible. Uh, so I guess maybe because of health reasons or whatever, uh, he eventually came back. I was also going to say something about the fact that I thought um, that he had additional reflections on Israel and diaspora Jewry by living in Israel. Uh, I, I'm, I haven't kept up on, you know, Kaplan's latest, later writings and so on. Um, but uh, it seems to me that uh, he, he would have rethought many of the principles, you know, living for 100 years gives you a chance to reformulate yourself many times, and I'm sure, you know, Kaplan as a creative mind was doing that. Uh, yes, in the back. Yeah, yeah, that's back enough, yeah. As, as, as both a reform rabbi and having studied all this. What, what's, what's your name? My name is Mitch. Mitch, Mitch what? Goldberg. 
Goldberg, okay, okay, nice, nice to see you. Yeah, okay, go on. As both a reform rabbi uh, and as a professor teaching all this stuff, how do you see... Oh, you're talking about me? I thought I was talking about you. As the, you said, uh, you're introducing yourself as a rabbi. Oh, I'm a reform rabbi. Okay, all right. All right, I forgot, I forgot I'm a reform rabbi. That's all right. Yeah. All right. Good question. Uh, did you ever hear that question? So how does, what's the impact upon Reform Judaism? Um, clearly Kaplan had a great influence on, on, on uh, Reform rabbinical school, uh, students, particularly in the 30s and the 40s. I know my father, for example, was very influenced by Reconstructionist Judaism. That was really a hot item when it emerged. My father graduated from the Reform Seminary in 1941, and he was living out his dream of living in New York all of those years and attending uh, 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 the various synagogues. And Reconstructionist Judaism certainly played a role in that generation. Um, there was another very famous rabbi also that had great impact upon both Reform and conservative rabbis named Milton Steinberg. Milton Steinberg, you know, the As a Driven Leaf, have any of you ever read that novel? Uh, um, and Milton Steinberg wrote a very famous book in the 1950s called Basic Judaism, which was really the most easy uh, way to present Judaism uh, to uh, an uneducated uh, per, uh, person with respect to Judaism. Um, and Steinberg also uh, took Kaplan's ideas and used them. So th this was really the hot time for Reconstructionist Judaism and it emerged with a whole group of intellectuals. So clearly th there was a generation of reform rabbis who were clearly influenced uh, by Kaplan's ideology. Um, Heschel less so because Heschel was quite demanding in terms of halakha and therefore he was seen as Orthodox Jew. I began to study my own Jewish theology when, in the presence of Eugene Borowitz, who was the professor of Jewish theology at the Hebrew College in New York. And Borowitz was indeed an ecumenical kind of Jewish thinker who drew heavily upon a whole variety of thinkers. Uh, you will, I guess the, in my, the influence of, of Buber on me comes through Gene uh, Borowitz, uh, who, taught, who loved Buber. I remember uh, the first paper I wrote for him uh, I kind of said, I'm really a skeptic. I don't believe in anything. But, and I wrote a very learned erudite paper, and he failed me. Um, <laughs> and then in the second paper, I was sort of inching for uh, a Buberian kind of god, and he gave me a C minus. And then I finally said at the third paper in his class, I really acknowledged the god of Martin Buber, and I got an A. So um, I know that's kind of persuasion of, of rabbinical school. Uh, but the reason I mention Borowitz is because he also appreciated Heschel. Uh, and Heschel spoke in the language of Martin Buber and he also spoke in the language of Franz Rosenzweig. They were all, I call them, religious existentialists. But of course his demands, he, he, the other two had not moved into an orthodox position while Heschel had. But nevertheless, uh, Heschel was so contagious to reform Jews because of his social presence. I mean, he was a leader, he stood out. I mean, it wasn't something that was unnatural to him or weird, it was something that he had to do. And therefore, the movement from supporting Russian Jewry to supporting Martin Luther King uh, was an incredible sight uh, for those uh, who, who lived through that generation uh, to see Heschel involved and being the leader of Jewry and coming from such a Hasidic and, and mystical background and so on. So I would argue that indeed, re some reform rabbis also read Heschel as well. But I think Kaplan had the greater influence in the time. Uh, I think in our own generation, through such people as Arthur Green uh, and, um, uh, what's his name, uh, 
the, the kind of neo-Hasidic groups that have emerged, uh, uh, the, the, the retreats, Arthur Waskow and his group, uh, uh, these, these kind of New Age Jews. Many of Heschel's ideas have sort of emerged uh, as being au courant as opposed to Kaplan's. I mean, the old rationalism needed now to be supplemented. There was a need now for the search for meaning for spirituality and so on. So I, I think, uh, in the end, Heschel gets the upper hand. I mean, who gets the upper hand are all the assimilated and cultural Jews that don't care about any Jewish thinker or Judaism in general. Obviously, uh, they have emerged as our majority, unfortunately. But nevertheless, for those who are seeking uh, it seems to me that, uh, that Heschel still speaks in the language of our, uh, the day. Um, uh, one of my good friends is Susie Heschel, Susanna Heschel, uh, who is the daughter of Abraham Joshua Heschel. She teaches uh, Jewish uh, history, intellectual history at Dartmouth College, uh, and she was at Penn for a while. She did her doctorate, actually, at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, and she has been clearly uh, an interpreter and a spokesperson for her own father's philosophy. Uh, uh, but he has a, a large group of his Hasidim. But so, do, um, but Reconstruction Judaism is still very much alive. Uh, there are uh, there are there are several that are really uh, dynamic and vibrant universes. I will experience university uh, synagogue uh, later on this week. Um, but I'm thinking of the one in Westchester and White Plains. I'm thinking of uh, the New York Synagogue Reconstructionist Judaism. Uh, certainly, uh, there are powerful groups in Philadelphia and so on. There are still very pockets of intellectual energy that emerges from this community. And of course, it's inter interest in gender, in feminism, in social activism, uh, and in mysticism. Uh, there is a, a full-time professor of Kabbalah at the Reconstructionist Rabbinical School. I wonder how Kaplan would have reacted to that. So um, indeed, these movements have merged. I don't think that Kaplan had as much influence because it took, they waited too long to create a movement. If he would have created a movement simultaneous with his philosophy, uh, perhaps it would have competed in terms of numbers. It never grew. It was always an elitist kind of phenomenon. But nevertheless, it did influence a group of reform rabbis. Um, and, uh, I would have, and, and clearly, when I was in rabbinical school, we studied both of these guys quite seriously. Uh, yeah? Um, for what I'm hearing, in the Judaism, it's such an old religion that, it's cool that it has evolved and revolved, and it's, and it's much more of a subjective. So what I'm saying is, um, and with all these movements, how would you classify modern orthodoxy? I hear modern orthodoxy. I don't know so much about around here, but very happy, you know, in the East Coast. Okay, you have to. Uh, to you, you know, with these, um, you know, when you say orthodoxy is orthodox, when they say modern orthodoxy. Yeah, yeah, I got it. I got it. Um, it's <laughs> and even I asked one, one woman, and I said, "Are you a Hasid?" And she said to me, "No, I'm a Yeshiva Jew." And I, I think. All right, I, I hate labels, uh, and they're sometimes uh, not so meaningful. Um, I wish you could come to uh, Penn and take my whole course, and I could do this in a more nuanced and uh, you know, systematic way than just throwing out a quick answer, but I can't do any better tonight. Um, but clearly, what, so what happened, I mean, if we want to follow the history of conservative Judaism, um, um, now it is experiencing much more of a, of a, of a, of a challenge or a crisis than, than reform, but reform is not doing necessarily so well as, I, mean, I, I, I don't think Judaism is doing so as well as we would like. But in any case, um, um, 
One of the changes that came about um, in the history of conservative Judaism in America was over the issue of ordaining women. Uh, that was really, uh, the conservatives seemed to always be about 10 years behind the reform, you know, uh, first women and homosexuality and then all of the issues which reform finally picked up, you know, and of course, as I suggested, the Reconstructionists were leading in all of these areas. Um, but it was a very de decisive blow to uh, Professor David Weiss Olivni, who left the seminary after that vote, which was put passed, uh, and founded a yeshiva of modern orthodoxy. Um, modern orthodoxy and traditional conservative Judaism were not that far apart. I mean, the, you know, what are called, if you use the Hebrew terms in Israel, misorati or traditional. Um, these are categories. Modern orthodoxy is usually associated with the thinker Samson Raphael Hirsch. And by the way, um, you have another opportunity to study with me on this particular topic. Um, it's out of order. I should have given that lecture first before I gave this one, but that's the way they did it. Uh, I'm giving a lecture on Abraham Geiger and Samson Raphael Hirsch. Abraham Geiger was the founder of Reform Judaism, and Samson Raphael Hirsch was the founder of Neo-Orthodoxy in Germany in the 19th century. So we're going to go back a century, and we're going to try to talk about the relevance of these two thinkers. So that's part of the same series, and I don't know when it is on the schedule, but take a look at, uh, at the program if you're interested. Uh, Neo-Orthodoxy influenced Yeshiva University. Uh, the, what neo-orthodoxy stands for is um, what he called Torah and Derech Eretz, or Torah uh, uh, or Mada, that was another word. Torah and living in, in other words, uh, Jews should go to the university, Jews should learn German, Jews should be part of the larger culture. At the same time, they should still practice all of the commandments of Judaism. So on religion, we are unbind, uh, we, are, uh, we, we, don't, we don't bend, we are unbending uh, on, on the the, the cultural question, we can be part of the larger cultural world. Uh, I think that it was embodied in, in the creation of Yeshiva University in New York, uh, of Torah Jews who uh, also you know, study the secular subjects, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I would say traditional orthodoxy, uh, traditional conservative Judaism, as formulated by someone like David Weiss-Halivni and by those orthodox rabbis who were NJTS, is not so far away. They, they sort of blend into each other. As we would see that certain reform congregations, traditional reform, are not so different from a liberal conservative. I mean, these are important, you know, institutions create their own identity and, and clearly, you know, you can break these identities down. Um, but clearly, um, uh, as, uh, you know, after having visited many congregations around the country, uh, I can tell you that uh, their name doesn't always fit the actual practice of the synagogue. Uh, and indeed, that was the case, particularly for conservative Judaism and reform, where basically the rabbi da'atra, I called uh, Mitch a rabbi before, but uh, assuming he was a rabbi, the rabbi da'atra is the rabbi of the place, sort of sets the standards of observance and practice, et cetera, et cetera. And therefore, there was much heterogeneity among the various synagogues in terms of practice, in terms of the focus of the congregation. Um, my issue with all these congregations today, uh, and that's why this uh, learning institute is such a, a remarkable pleasure, even though it's a burden to do the 21, um, is that there are Jews that are serious like yourself that actually come out to listen to these talks. Uh, I'm not watering down my lectures, as you saw, for, uh, you know, I, I'm not, uh, I'm teaching courses that I would teach at the university in this way. Uh, and much of the lectures that I'm giving during this period of time are from my own original research. 
Uh, I gave a paper a couple of nights ago, uh, I mean a, a lecture, uh, I forgot which one, it was on Christian Hebraicism in England in the 18th century, a book that I wrote on in 2007. I had never given it to a lay audience, it was only an academic kind of uh, presentation. And they, these people were really enthusiastic about it, it was absolutely amazing. So, I mean, that's what I search for when I visit these Jewish communities. In other words, uh, whatever are their practice, um, there's a need for Jewish literacy. We have to know where we came from. We have to know about our history. We can't lose it. Uh, and I guess the last bastion of, of, of hope for us, uh, for me at least, is the university. We're sending our students to take Jewish studies courses and to be part of that experience of learning in a very serious way. And also the kind of learning, in other words, learning within an academic uh, culture. In other words, learning comparatively, learning to use the tools of, of, of scholarship for other disciplines, for other fields, and to try to apply them, to think about them in terms of Judaism. So that is really one of the most creative and positive aspects of American Jewish life. From my own perspective, although there is a, a downer in all of this and that we now are experiencing in the universities the decline of the humanities in general, right? People are studying sciences, Silicon Valley, and so on. Uh, and who studies Shakespeare and uh, the Bible as literature? And um, uh, that is really an interesting... So, you know, we, we strived for 40 years to make it in the university in terms of Jewish studies. We made it. We are naturalized. We are part of the university. So we're going to sync with uh, the humanities as well. But I, it's not really that dire, uh, but uh, Jewish studies still holds its own. Um, but nevertheless, uh, that is a challenge which we face not only in the university, but outside the university in terms of, of learning. Uh, anyway, these two thinkers are very, have very much to think about. I must tell you from my own, uh, relating back to the university. So I've taught this course for 40 years uh, on um, modern Jewish intellectual history, where I teach Jewish thought from Spinoza, who I set up as the kind of gadfly, you know, he's going to challenge everything, and the rest of Jewish thought is a response to Spinoza, which it really is. Uh, and I end with, uh, with Heschel and, and Kaplan, but I even go beyond that, I talk about a, a ne the next generation of Jewish thinkers. Um, and these kids are asked to write papers in which they compare two thinkers, as we did this evening, uh, but then I, I, I have to sort of uh, tread lightly here because um, I'm a university professor. I'm not playing rabbi in my classroom. That would undermine my, my, my place as a university professor. So what I do uh, is I said, if you want to respond personally to what you've just written, make a line and write me a personal note at the end. I won't grade that part. I'll just respond as a human being. And what's really interesting, particularly Orthodox Jewish kids that are reading some of these thinkers for the first time. I mean, as I, I don't know if I said, I've said it in other audiences, but I'm probably the only Reformed rabbi in the world who most of my students are Orthodox. Because Penn is a very uh, you know, Jewish place. Um, but I got them working on feminism, and I got them working on Mordechai Kaplan, and I have, I'm, you know, et cetera. And they're all reading this stuff, and they're all reacting to it, and I want to see what happens when they read this stuff. I present Abraham Geiger to them. The I talk about Reformed Judaism, and I present it in a light that uh, they never heard from any of their teachers before. Um, and uh, I, I, it's, it's a remarkable experience to be able to do that. Of course, I have Christians in the class as well, I, it, so I have to teach it in a way which is not parochial. I, I never let a kid uh, speak in the, in the first person. It always has to be the third person. And I try to preserve that academic aspect. On the other hand, I know full well 
that what's happening in this class, unlike you know, a course in medieval Jewish history, is that these kids are relating, are relating personally to this stuff. It's, it, these thinkers are thinking about the same questions about Jewish faith that they're thinking about. And therefore, I want to give them uh, a, a, an opportunity to, uh, to express themselves. And some of them do. Some of the boys who are yeshiva bachers are just too close. They, it's very interesting. The women are the usual, are the ones that write me these letters, which are really quite uh, amazing, uh, which describe their own reaction to reading a Heschel or a Kaplan, et cetera, et cetera. So that, those are some of the joys of being an educator and uh, reflect uh, how I teach these thinkers uh, in a classroom at, uh, at Penn. So uh, have we had enough? Are you ready for the, uh, dessert? All right, one more, last one. How does humanistic Judaism yeah, fit in? I mean, uh, Byron Sherman, Sherwin, and uh, began in Detroit, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, and there's also, um, um, what's his name? He's a good friend of mine, but I can't remember his name. He's, he's a, uh, a very rich British Jew who donates a lot of money uh, to supporting secular Judaism. <clears throat> um, anybody, you know his name, anybody? Uh, I've been at his home in, in England, and we're, we're, but I, I never took any of his money. He, he actually used to offer $50,000 grants to, to universities that would teach a course on secular Judaism where, where, they, where God would never be mentioned. Um, I never took a penny from him. Uh, Felix Posen, his name is, and it's a Posen Foundation. Um, and he was very much connected with humanistic Judaism as well. So this is a, uh, a version, it's, he was a, uh, Sherman, as far as I know, was a reform rabbi that broke from the reform movement in terms of uh, not addressing, not, not, of, of eliminating God from the service, of speaking in secular terms about Judaism. Um, it's, it's not a large movement within Judaism. There, I, I have encountered in various cities uh, groups of humanistic Jews. Uh, in fact, when I was a very young professor at the University of Maryland, I just came back uh, in my early years, um, a humanistic uh, havara asked me to be their rabbi. All they wanted on Sunday were lectures on Jewish history. They didn't want anything about God or anything else. And I actually did it for a couple of months, and it, they were a nice group of people. Um, have they caught on? I mean, is, are, is this the problem of our world of being Jewish that we don't need God anymore? Posen, I've argued with Posen many times about this, that you know, the problem of Judaism is let's get rid of God and then people will acknowledge their Jewish identity. Uh, he all, uh, that, that, uh, that might have been a discourse that went on years ago. I don't find among the present generation of 18-year-olds that I teach that that is the issue at all. In other words, as I pointed out, and I sort of uh, tipped the scales for Heschel in this conversation, uh, the search for spirituality, the search for something that is beyond ourselves, uh, the need for you know, a personal relevance which comes out of understanding what the world is about uh, and tries to answer the difficult questions, particularly in this horrible, challenging political and social and economic uh, climate that we live in, uh, it seems to me uh, that search for spirituality goes on among those who are, who are seekers of the path, mivakshe uh, derech. Um, so I'm not sure, I, I may be a good question whether humanistic uh, Judaism will survive beyond a generation or two. Um, clearly there is a long history of secular Judaism, which goes back to you know, the Yivo and Yiddishists uh, and, the, and the, the Jewish labor movement, 
uh, and of course secular Zionism. So uh, you know, part teaching modern Jewish history is teaching, of course, secular approaches to Judaism as well. But uh, you know, being a uh, an all uh, you know a, a non-judgmental historian. I also want to teach uh, the religious dimensions of Judaism, uh, and I think those options uh, to our generation are still quite meaningful and relevant. Thank you very much.